0: You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.
1: Okay. So the preface to the moral law, we looked um at the moral law, what it is before. And there are basically three parts to the moral law that we're to consider. It's the preface, the commandments themselves, and the reasons annexed to some of them. So in this study, let me just say up front, some of it's going to be repetitive and overlapping. So you'll notice some things on different slides that are the same thought. That's okay. It wasn't that I forgot what was on the previous slide although it probably would happen. So the preface itself, what is the preface to the Ten Commandments? The preface to the Ten Commandments is in these words, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it's important to um, notice in the beginning there, I am the Lord. Full stop. I am the Lord. Second, Thy God, third, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So, the three distinct sections there, I think, that the divines bring out for our consideration and their reasons for us to obey the moral law. So, what this does is it introduces the lawgiver and it prepares us for his law. This is important. At the foot of Mount Sinai, you'll remember, Israel waited upon the Lord, the one who delivered them from Egyptian slavery. Uh, He had taken them out powerfully with the ten plagues. He had led them victoriously across the Red Sea, through the wilderness, to the mount, and it was there that through Moses he gave them the law. Brought them out of bondage to make them a nation for himself. He chose them. And it wasn't because they were more numerous, wasn't because they were better than any other, it's simply because he chose them for reasons known only to himself. The same reason he chooses you and I, or you and me. We're no better than anybody else. And the reasons why he chose us are simply because he chose us, and they're known only to him. And so what happens is this preface to the moral law corresponds to the preamble that was characteristic of what's called suzerain-vassal treaties. Now, we've looked at this before, years ago. Now, some of you may not have heard of this. What is a suzerain-vassal treaty? Well, in these treaties between a suzerain, who is the great king, and the vassal, who is a lesser king, they would form a treaty where the vassal would... Swear allegiance to the great king and service to him and tribute. And the great king would promise protection and provision for the lesser king. Um, Over and over again, we see how Israel would have to give tribute, you know, to greater kings or nations and so forth. In the Old Testament with Abraham, there was uh, four kings and five kings. One was led by Chater Leomer, the great king, suzerain. And the lesser kings under him were his vassal kings. And they would have a treaty. And this treaty would spell out the stipulations. I'll protect you. I'll provide for you. You honor me. You give me tribute. And you swear your allegiance to me. So in these treaties, the preamble to the treaty would identify the suzerain by his name and his various titles. And there are are examples all over the place in the ancient uh, Middle East. And what happened was this would illustrate to the vassal king how much the suzerain had done to protect and provide for the vassal's nation. I've done all this. I'm a great king. I have protected you. I've saved you. I've I've conquered your enemies for you. And that was the preamble to introduce and to exalt the suzerain king. Well, the preface to the moral law is analogous to that. It identifies Yahweh as the great sovereign or the suzerain to whom absolute allegiance is required. And I find it interesting that God in his providence would establish these kinds of treaties in the ancient Near East to prepare his people to understand what he was doing at Mount Sinai. He's using something that's familiar in their experience to establish this covenant with his chosen people. He's a suzerain. He is the Lord. He is the sovereign God. The miraculous ten plagues and the wondrous exodus from Egypt would have been fresh on their minds, and they recognize: yes, he demonstrated his power. He did liberate us. And as Leviticus 26 points out, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. So that's what this preface... This, providentially, it helps us to understand what's going on in the context so that God is introducing himself formally and publicly as their suzerain. Any questions about that? Any comments? Okay. Good. Well, then the question goes on. The next question, what does the preface to the Ten Commandments teach us? What's its significance? Well, the preface to the Ten Commandments teaches us that because God is the Lord, there's His sovereignty, and our God, there is the relationship, and Redeemer, there is the deliverance, therefore we are bound to keep all His commandments. What rationale is there for us to obey this God? And He gives us three absolutely tight reasons there for doing so. We're obliged to obey His commands because He is God. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, which, by the way, in the fullness of time was given to Christ, who alone has that prerogative now. Our God in covenant and our Redeemer out of gratitude. Because He's authoritative, because we're in covenant, because we should be thankful, we should obey His commandments. Can we do it perfectly? No. You and I both break these commandments every single day. But Jesus obeyed them perfectly. And there we have the righteousness that we need. John?
0: <clears throat> so a modern way of saying this is that we obey out of gratitude. But this is almost saying, we really say we are obeying out of gratitude. It is only one of the three aspects. And sometimes gratitude is put over and against obeying out of obligation or out of fear or, or out of servitude. Right. You're saying, but you're, you're pulling from the text that
1: this is you're obeying both. All three. All three. God has authority. Regardless of who you are, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're in covenant or not, you have an obligation to obey your Creator, first and foremost. So mankind has to obey God, right? That's the authority. So we're under obligation to obey Him because He has the authority. <laughs> Secondly, we're under obligation because we're in covenant. That's part of the covenant that we are in. Um, in Christ, we're obligated to obey our our God. He's not just God; He's our God. And then you're right. Third, there is that thankfulness, that gratitude factor. That I mean, He has saved us. It's a great salvation, you know. And this is the reason why the Wilderness Generation died. They grumbled and complained. They were ungrateful. Those miserable ingrates, God delivered them. They watched him perform these miracles, and yet they complained and murmured throughout the entire 40-year period. So the whole adult generation died. So for these three reasons, we need to obey his commandments. Now again, the Bible teaches us that because we're sinful, we can't do this, which is why Jesus had to do it for us. But, in sincerity, we strive to please our Heavenly Father. And he accepts that in Christ. It's not that he lessens the perfection that's necessary. It's just that he understands that Christ has performed obedience for us, and now we obey out of gratitude. Any other, before we move on? Okay. So the the Ten Commandments are oftentimes memorized and considered apart from the preface. And I have to say, even in our confession, and we've done this, and I'm probably at fault, but I think we have professed or confessed the commandments without the preface. And it's not wrong to do that. Don't get me wrong. But it tends to help us, tends to prevent us from remembering the gracious character of what's going on here, if we just have the Ten Words. It disassociates the moral law from the goodness and the grace of God, who is its author. Remember, this was given on Mount Sinai after the fall of man. After the flood, when God said their thoughts are still continually evil, and He's still giving us the moral law graciously as a guide to living, to protect His people from falling into slavery to sin. The result, then, is a morality that is uprooted from God's sovereignty and His redeeming grace. Where does the morality come from? It comes from the authority of God Himself. The moral law is a declaration of His holy nature and will. It's not just some abstract law out there kind of floating around in the ethernet. It is the declaration of God's holy nature and will. We live and move and have our being in God, and if this is who God is morally, we're obligated to obey and conform ourselves to His will. So if we disassociate the ten words, the ten commandments, from the preface, it tends to disassociate it from, I am the Lord, His authority, your God, the covenant, who redeemed you, graciousness, and our gratitude. It's important to have this preface. It undergirds the whole idea of morality. The preface declares the authority and grace that undergirds the moral law and its role in redemption. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What a gracious thing God has done to acknowledge what is holiness and what is righteousness. Uh, Bruce? I don't want to call it an if-then
2: clause, but it's because of... That's what I'm taking, that I interpret properly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's because one way to look God at it.
2: God, because we are part of his covenant, right. we must.
1: Right. Our obedience to these 10 words is grounded in that preface. You're right. It's on the basis of God's authority, his covenant, and his redeeming grace. Yeah. And we know that we can't even obey the slightest part of his law without redeeming grace. Anything we do, our best works are imperfect and defiled in the sight of God. The best thing we can do, the best saint that's ever lived, the Apostle Paul, he sinned every day. He was accepted only because of Jesus Christ. And if that's true of the Apostle Paul, it's certainly true of us. So, what a gracious thing that he would reveal to us the nature of sin Uh, and convict us of sin so that we are driven to Christ. Let's face it, if you and I were never convicted of sin, what need would there be of a Savior? There would be no need. Jesus came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees thought they were righteous. They thought they had it mastered. Uh, And that was a a sad thing. It was the, the tax gatherers and the prostitutes, who were under the conviction of sin, who recognized their need, and they fled to Christ for refuge. It's a gracious thing. So through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God uses the moral law to awaken the conscience of the unbeliever and to guide the believer in living the Christian life. Very important. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith, that's a gracious thing, that God would use this to drive us to Christ and to lead us to Christ. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It's a wonderful thing. It comes out of his holy nature, but it's also revealed because of his graciousness. So then to consider the Ten Commandments apart from the preface inevitably leads to a misunderstanding. Legalism, uh, just trying to earn your way or to please God by your obedience, which we can never do. Any questions? Any further comments or questions? Sue? Well, I'm just saying because we're his creatures, God's our creator, and he loves us, that the moral
0: law is for our own. Amen. Um, flourish, yeah. So to see it and trust in that would be a big piece of the
1: all. Absolutely. You're absolutely right that it is for our good. It, it keeps us from falling into slavery because sin, slavery to sin is misery. The problem is we hate it by nature. We don't like the moral law. We don't like authority. You know, when the, moral, when the law comes, it stirs up sin, and we sin all the more, right? So we need to have the new birth and the grace of God coursing through our spirits to enable us to even love God's law. But as a believer, David says, I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. That's because he was regenerate. That's because the Spirit of God had given him a desire for the law, right? Right? Yeah, if you love me, first of all, we don't love him at all by nature. So the new birth gives us that new love for Christ. And that love expresses itself in part by conformity to the law, which we keep sincerely, but not perfectly. So God sees, okay, there's Rob Whitaker. He's born again. He loves Christ. He's trying sincerely to keep my law. He doesn't. But through Jesus, he takes that sincere obedience and he accepts it through Christ. And that is pleasing to him. Yeah. I mean, does that answer your question? Okay. Yeah. But without the new birth, there is no love for God's law. We hate the law. We are autonomous beings, or at least we want to be autonomous beings. That's the whole idea of sinfulness. we, We want to be autonomous. We don't want to be associated with God. And the fact that an unbeliever says, I want to go to heaven is a lie. Heaven is the last place he'd want to be. Sure, he wants to have the death of the righteous, like Balaam, but he doesn't want to live the life of the righteous, and he wouldn't want to be in relationship with the righteous God. So, thank God for the new birth. Laura?
2: this, whatever it is you're going to say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Just, this is why we're going to take this approach. It, it establishes relationship.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good analogy. I mean, the fact that, hey, just because I said so, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's reason enough. But you're right, to establish the relationship, and rather than to push, to lead, we preface, and that's important, especially with our children, whom we love, right? And there is a special obligation of, par- of children to parents. It's not just an authority figure. We're in rela- a clo- one of the closest relationships on earth, parent, or child to parent. And there are obligations upon inferiors to superiors that go far beyond the typical relationship that we have in society. Any other questions on that before we move on? John? Would these uh,
0: three aspects of authority, covenant, and gratitude be, therefore, in family as well, or in, in fathers in parents?
1: To yes, absolutely. very good insight. I hadn't thought about that, but very good insight. Yeah, exactly. Authority. God says that the parents have authority, pure and simple. You should obey them because they're your parents. There is a covenant relationship <clears throat> of sorts, because we're there with baptism, at least in the Presbyterian church. you presenting them to God, dedicating them to God, and they're taking the baptismal vow. You're doing it for them. So there is, in a sense, a covenantal relationship there. And then, of course, gratitude, because parents provide everything. They protect you. They feed you. They change your diaper, you know, all kinds of things. So, yeah, I, I like that. Laura? Absolutely. Yeah. Those of us who have had good good examples as parents, that's a wonderful thing. It, it, It influences your whole life. Yeah. Okay. Well, we continue with the significance. The preface states God's sovereignty as the eternal and immutable God. He has absolute, supreme, and unchallenged authority over all things. When I say unchallenged, I don't mean the devil hasn't tried to challenge him, but it's totally unsuccessful. There is no way he could ever come close to really challenging the authority of God. He has infinite authority, infinite power. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth in the seas and all deeps. And the deeps include the depths of hell. The gates of hell can't prevail against the church, and that's because of God's power. And as the sovereign, he is ultimate and supreme so that no being, no law, no principle is over him. He's supreme, sovereign. He is responsible to himself. He is accountable to no one. His own nature is the only law that he observes. And thank God that he is holy and righteous. There is nothing above him. There is nothing beyond him. There is nothing that compares with or competes with him. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. <laughs> that is a supreme being. That's the height of arrogance to say something like that unless you are God, you know. So no mere creature has the the right to question or to challenge any of the words or the works of God. If he lays out the Ten Commandments, well, then that's our obligation. As John Gerstner used to say, and this is probably a little TMI for you, (laughs) maybe I've said this before, as Gerstner used to say, if he told me to eat dung, I'd do it. Because he has the authority. And no mere creature has the right to question him. (laughs) You didn't say that. (laughs) You're right. Um, Mary Alice?
2: authority comes with
1: love. Yeah, well, thank God. Just authority, it's got to be nothing. Authority. authority is Allah, right? It's a false God, but I'm just saying that's how they picture their false God, oh. authority. You submit. That's Islam. And
2: that's
1: Right, and you hit the nail on the head, and that's why the preface is so important. It's not just these bare ten words, an exercise of pure authority. There is love and grace and kindness and mercy that comes with it. He redeemed them out of Egyptian slavery. Mind you, he redeemed them out of their own Egyptian idolatry. They, were, they had gotten sucked into so much of the idolatry of the Egyptian culture. He redeemed them anyway. And brought them out. So it's not because of us; it's because of who He is. He's a God of love. Why He would love us is beyond me, but He does. Everlastingly, unwaveringly, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that's why you need to know, because you know He loves you, and He will never do anything that could hurt. You. Absolutely. Because he's authoritative, because he's love, right? Absolutely, we can trust him. So to do so, to question him, would be the height of impiety and irreverence. He is thrice holy, infinitely pure, and utterly righteous. King Nebuchadnezzar had an encounter with him. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just And those who walk in pride, He is able to humble, as He found out. He is sovereign in the work of redemption, and salvation is bestowed according to His sovereign good pleasure. Those of us who have loved ones who have yet confessed Christ, we can take heart that God is sovereign. It's not up to you and it's not up to me. It's up to His Holy Spirit to convince and convert. And uh, Lord willing, he will, as we keep praying. Any questions on this particular slide? Any other questions? Okay. We continue. Hebrew, the Hebrew language, consists of consonants. No vowels, just consonants. Um, And vowels were supplied by the readers. So when you're reading along in a Hebrew Bible, it's just the consonants, and you, as a Hebrew would provide the vowels in your own mind. Whoops, wrong thing. That's the name, those are the consonants for the name of Yahweh that was revealed to Moses at the burning bush. We say Yahweh, we're not sure how it was pronounced. We don't know what the vowels were to be supplied, but those are the consonants. And what Jews would do, because they were superstitious, in my estimation, they wouldn't say the name of Yahweh because it was so holy, so exalted. So they would substitute the name of Adonai, Lord. Okay? So whenever they came across Yahweh in the Hebrew Scriptures, they'd say Adonai. When the rabbis later came along and did add vowel points to the text, they would take the vowel points for Adonai and put them on Yahweh, which gave us then the word Jehovah. We say Yahweh, King James says Jehovah, and that's the reason why, but they're the same thing. They're saying the same thing, and it means I am who I am. I was who I was. I will be who I will be. It can be any one of those. And it affirms the self-sufficiency, the eternality, the infinity of the true and living God. He is sovereign and self-existent and immutable and everlasting. He always is. He is almighty as the ten plagues and the Exodus proved. And he's a faithful covenant-keeping God. And he is the Lord who has his being in and of himself. And he gives being to all of his words and his works. When he says something, it's as good as done which is why the Old Testament saints were saved by the forthcoming blood of Christ. It was certain. When God says it, it'll happen. He's our God in covenant, solemnly committed, as with Israel of old, so with all of his people, and he is our redeemer, for as he brought them out of Egypt, he delivers us from our spiritual thraldom. That whole episode was a picture, as it were, of salvation. All this to say, he is sovereign, faithful, and gracious to his chosen and beloved people. people, not people. <laughs> and this is a majestic and solemn introduction to the extremely weighty commands that follow. These are weighty commands and prohibitions. Because of who he is, as his titles indicate, we're bound to keep all of his commandments Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. We're not serving God in the way of a servant, servile fear. We're serving him in the way that a son obeys his parents out of love, as we've talked recently. Children obey, they recognize the authority of their parents, but when their parents are good parents, they also recognize the love, as Mary Alice pointed out. So, again, the preface highlights who God is and our relationship to Him and why we are we're bound to keep His commandments. Any questions on this particular slide? Bruce? Because He's our creator,
2: and correct me if this sounds stretching, He's our creator, so... He knows these are the ten tendencies we have. A, we have a natural tendency that are built in. I mean, they're wired in terms of greed, lust, hatred for God, walking away from any commandment. I want freedom. So if we're wired that way, it's in our creator basically telling us these are the things that you are naturally tended to do, but I don't want you to do them because I love you.
1: Yeah, I think you're right, and that's why most of the commandments are negatively expressed in prohibitions, as prohibitions, right? Don't steal. Well, the way it was revealed and written on Adam's heart was um, preserve and promote and procure wealth. Help your neighbor to become prosperous, you know. That's a positive way, but because we're sinful, I think it was expressed at Sinai negatively as prohibitions, most of them, not all of them, but most of them. Remember the Sabbath day. That's positive. Well, why would he say remember it? Well, because we're so ready to forget it, right? And do away with it. And in any society that's done away with Sabbath keeping, I'm not trying to make a theological point here, but simply of observation. Any society that's gotten rid of Sabbath keeping, it's gone down. Mm -hmm. Satan uses that to bring in, as our divines tell us all, irreligion and impiety. When we... Buck the rhythm of life. When we fail to honor God with the tribute of time, he reserves but one for himself and gives us six for our own affairs. When we buck that, society goes down.
0: John? You're saying any society you have
1: the example. What's that? You have examples. There are historical studies, and I don't have them on the, at the tip of my tongue. We've talked about that here, I think, in Sunday school years ago. So I could get that information, but I don't have it on at hand. Rob. I think it's
2: called the NFL. <laughs> 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 the NFL. But even for those of us that were on the golf course, it's. I want to rest my. I, I don't want to rest God. I, I want to do what I want. Hey, it's my day off. I, I owe it to not. I owe to God what He commands. I accomplish.
1: Yeah. Well, and also, if we think about it, this is getting kind of a little far afield, but um, the command is to work six days. We work five, right? And it doesn't mean you have to be at your office six days. It means you take Saturday and you get the things done. You have to get done at home or in the yard or whatever, and that frees you up for the tribute of one day for God, Right? So we dispose and seasonally dispatch all of our worldly concerns so that we can be ready to observe the Lord's Day, just like Christmas. I think most of us here prepare for Christmas, right? You're not going to be out cutting the grass. Well, it's not in Ohio, but (laughs) you're not going to do some of these things on Christmas Day because that's a day you have set apart. It's special, family, celebration, I get it. Well, that's what we should do for every Lord's Day. Okay, The name Yahweh is translated as Lord in our ESV, absolute sovereign, infinite wisdom, almighty power, and that alone is reason enough, reason enough for us to obey, but it's especially because he extends grace and mercy. As a preface, words spoken beforehand, it shows that salvation comes first in the Christian life. This is one of the reasons why in Paul's letters, for example, he always lays out the doctrine first. And then the ethics. He never puts the ethics first. Why? Because we need to be saved in order to walk in those good works that God's prepared beforehand. So the preface comes first, showing that salvation comes first. No one is able to keep God's commandments. That's why Jesus kept them for us. His imputed righteousness fulfills the law's demands, gives us right standing with God. What a wonderful thing that is. The indwelling spirit renews our hearts so that we can be sincere in keeping the law of God. Yeah, he's a sinner. He breaks it every day, but he's sincere. I know that. I can see it. Well, I can't see his heart. I assume you're sincere because of what you say. So we're not saved. This is what Bruce was saying. We're not saved because of our obedience, but we're saved in order that we might obey. He saves you from your sins. He doesn't save you in your sins. There needs to be repentance unto life. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that that we should walk in them. This is why we say that obedience is necessary for salvation. And all kinds of people say red flags are going up, you know. Obedience is necessary for salvation. We're saved by faith alone. But it is never by a faith that is alone. There are always graces and virtues that accompany true saving faith, which is why James says, if, you're, if you don't have good works, the faith that you profess is dead faith. And if it's dead faith, you're not justified. So we say faith equals justification plus works. It'll express itself in works. We'll see the evidence of your salvation. All mankind is obligated to keep God's law, but Christians are obliged because also because of salvation, and by reason of our relationship to Yahweh through Christ, we are to keep all His commands. Any comments, questions? Rob, that's the liberal. Well, the liberal would say justification, or I mean, works equals justification minus work, minus faith. No, there's no faith. There's no virgin birth. Christ isn't divine. The Bible's not inspired. Uh, works equals justification. The uh, Roman Catholic would say, faith plus works equals justification. You, you believe in Jesus. You trust in his atoning blood. You need the Holy Spirit. That, um, that faith then leads to good works, which then justifies you. So they would affirm all the things we do, Apostles' Creed and so forth, and you hear a Catholic saying that stuff, and you're like, oh, look at this, he believes in salvation in Christ. No, Trent is clear. Your faith will produce works, which then justifies you. The Arminian, or the uh, antinomian, I should say, would say, faith equals justification minus works. Not that he doesn't believe in works. Some of the the antinomians or Arminians work hard for the Lord. They would just say they're not necessary. And we would say faith equals justification plus works. It's necessary. It's not meritorious. There's nothing we do that can add anything to our salvation. We don't earn anything. But the faith that God gives us to save us produces works. Does that make sense? It's probably easier to put a chart up there, but I don't have one, so. Okay, real quick in the final, there's some rules for understanding the Ten Commandments. These are in the larger catechism. We're going to go through these further quickly, but any question. If you're going to understand the Ten Commandments, you have to abide by these rules. There's eight of them. Uh, The Bible comes up with these it applies the moral law to all sorts of problems and situations, and that's how the divines came up with these rules the derive from Scripture's application. Number one, the law is perfect. It binds everyone to full conformity in the whole man, soul and body. So it requires the utmost perfection of every duty, and it forbids the least degree of every sin. We have to recognize that. You know, the Bible says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the goal. And the moral law is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect, it says, reviving the soul. And the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So first of all, understand that this law is perfect. There needs nothing to be added to it. Nothing should be taken away from it. These 10 words, these 10 commands cover everything. Second, the law is spiritual. It reaches the understanding, the will, the affections, the thoughts, the words, and the actions, every part of your soul and body. By spiritual is meant pertaining to the human spirit here, all the powers of the soul. This was the problem of the Pharisees. They overlooked the spiritual character of the moral law and applied it only to conduct. What? You haven't killed anybody physically? Great. You've kept the sixth commandment. No. Jesus says if you've been angry with somebody, you've killed them in your heart. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Every part of you. And some people go to the opposite extreme. They claim that the moral law requires only inward spiritual conformity. I remember these actors and actresses who'll say something like, Yeah, I was, I was in the movie, and I was doing some immoral things in the movie, but that was the, that was the character I was playing. That wasn't me. What? you did it. So they argue that outward conformity is unnecessary, yet the words and conduct express the heart. So it's spiritual. Some commands overlap so that a sin or duty is often repeated. For example, the duty to work is required in the fourth commandment, six days shalt thou labor. And in the eighth commandment, you have a diligent diligent labor in your calling. That's part of the command not to steal. It's to promote wealth. So some, com- some sins and duties are often repeated. Human life is complex, and one facet may be related to several commands. We have to understand that. But they never contradict each other because God is the author. Four, the law has implicit contraries. What does that mean? Sins and duties, promises and threats imply each other. So... Whenever a positive or negative is expressly stated, the contrary is implied. Thou shalt not steal, as we've said. That's the prohibition. Well, implicit, you shall promote wealth. You see? So every command has implicit contraries. He said to him, All these I'll give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Begone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus, how does that have to do with what Satan's saying? Well, because positively you worship God. Implicitly you do not hearken to Satan's suggestions, right? The prohibition is implied. Jim? The promotion
2: We be generous.
1: Absolutely. We Absolutely. Not
2: just the collection of wealth for our own purposes, but the collection of wealth so that
1: we can give for those who are well, well said and a very good point. You're right. And that's all part and parcel of making sure our neighbor is prospering. That's part of the eighth commandment. So you're right. We are to be generous. Absolutely. Fifth, the law is absolute, so the duties are always required and sins are always forbidden. The ends do not justify the means. Committing a sin for a good purpose is not permitted. Robin Hood had it wrong. (laughs) Why not do evil that good may come? Robin Hood, steal from the rich, give to the poor. As some people slanderously charge us, their condemnation is just. It's neither lawful nor wise to steal in order to satisfy hunger or to murder in order to prevent tyranny. John?
0: Examples uh, of somebody gives you their weapons in the right mind and then comes to you and they're not in the right mind and asks for the weapons back. And you shouldn't give it to them because then they would go and create some crime, or that somewhat I think also an enemy comes to you and asks you to basically tell you the military secrets, and you should and you should lie to them or not tell them the truth. Um, how does that inter- how is the how would you interpret those situations?
1: You had to ask that. <laughs> It's always the Ninth Commandment that's the big issue. If the Nazis come to your door and you're hiding Jews, do you lie?
0: Which, which happened and people had
1: to... Exactly, yeah. Um, uh, Well, let's just put it this way. Um, I think you can say something without lying and yet not divulging the whole truth. Um, God is a God of truth, and it's one of the most important characteristics of his nature, and it ought to be of his people. So we ought not to be a people who lie. But does that mean that when you're in war and you're kind of, you're putting out a decoy, is that a lie? No, I don't, I don't think that's a lie. Does that mean when you're playing Monopoly? You know, all, all these different scenarios in the game. You, what's the game where you you, you lie or something? I doubt it or something. You're all coming together agreeing that this is the game and the rules of the game. So that's a different scenario than actually lying for personal gain or to deceive somebody. Can I put that off? Don? Rahab. Yeah. God did not commend her for her lie. God commended her because she trusted in him and believed his covenant. Yeah. Yeah. That's That's a good point. Yeah. So let me just move on here, John. That's a really good question, but it's we'll get to it, ninth commandment. And hopefully Jason's here to do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, you're right. Right. It's But that that is a specific ethical question on the ninth commandment. Pastor, I,
2: I think it has to do with love. Yeah. You take a look at Rahab. She
1: did what she
2: did out of
1: blood. And she believed God. Yeah. And, and Right. Yeah, but love does not trump morality. No. Ever. So it's a really good question that he asks, and one that has to be answered. We need to tease that out. But in the preface, we don't need to tease it out until we get to the ninth commandment. That's when we take the commandment and say, okay, how do we apply this? Uh, two more. The commands apply to the whole class of duties and sins, all of the same kind, are forbidden or commanded, all the causes, means, occasions, and appearances thereof. An outward act is a combination of a complex chain of motion events. So you've heard that it was said of those of old, "You shall not murder." That's prohibited. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Any cause, any occasion, any appearance of this commandment is forbidden, and it has social implications where to help others to avoid them or perform them, as the case may be. I better stop. It's getting late, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's another part of the ethical aspect of the ninth commandment, which is very important. So these are going to be really good questions when we get there. I won't either. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the moral law, and especially the preface, which shows us that out of love and mercy and grace, you've given these commands and this revelation to us. Please prepare us for worship now and help us to honor you in what we do. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.